So, Karen, this morning we were driving to the North Church. Peter, would you close the door as you leave? Thanks. Uh, we were driving to the North Church, and I told her, I said, I can't believe God sends me money to preach the gospel. I can't believe I get to do this for a living. And I've told you many times that I would pay you to let me do this, but it's really good that you pay me because Karen's going to need some new shoes pretty soon, I know. So it's really good that you, do, you guys pay me, but I, I would do it if you didn't pay me. I, I love to preach the gospel. Um, sometimes when people ask me what I do, I like to say I turn the world upside down. And uh, I just leave it hanging there for a few minutes and, and uh, see if I get any kind of response. And most often I get no response. I, I, I assume they're assuming that, that I'm doing serious drugs of some kind. And uh, they don't ask me what I mean. And after an awkward moment or two, I will clarify them. I tell them that I am a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I clarify it even further. I said, actually, I don't turn anyone's life upside down. He does. Jesus Christ is the one that turns lives upside down. All I am is a mouthpiece. Some of you recognize that phrase, turning the world upside down. It's what the Greeks accused Paul and Silas of doing as they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. October 1517, 490 years ago, there was an unassuming, rather dumpy, and very unattractive little monk who did the same thing. October 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses uh, to the church door at Wittenberg, protesting the sale of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church. Do you know your church history? Does everyone here know their church history? Four, year late, four years later, April 18th, at precisely 6 p.m., he stood before the Archbishop of Tyre. The Archbishop demanded that Luther recant of his uh, writings that were critical of Roman Catholic practice and doctrine. And here's what Martin Luther said. Many of you already know. He says, unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Don't you love that? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. And this is what we've been saying about the International Church of Milan. We stand on the Word of God. Our conscience is held captive. And as I thought about this fourth sermon in this series, Luther's words just kept flooding into my mind all last week and I knew I needed to share them with you. Our conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And to paraphrase Luther, to go against the Word of God is neither right nor safe. I was thinking this week as I was studying how good Satan is at his job. And I often think of him, I often get this mental image of him laughing uncontrollably at how easily we are deceived. Someone tell me, are they still teaching logic at university? Because back when I was, a long time ago, back in the 1970s, you had to take logic okay, to graduate at university. Uh, isn't it still logically impossible to hold two contradictory propositions at the same time to be true? Is that still logically impossible? Or has, have the rules of logic and rationality changed? Because I hear nice people, reasonably intelligent people, educated people say things like this. Men take different routes, albeit contradictory ones, to God. Now friends, 
If I had put that on my final back in college, back in the 70s, I would have failed. I would have failed my logic final. That kind of argumentation, it makes my head hurt. How many of you guys have uh, read this book by Ravi Zacharias, uh, Jesus Among Other Gods? It's a great book. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. Um, Ravi has a thing or two to say about that kind of logic. Listen to what he says. And I told the morning service, I, I really want to learn how to, I, before I grow up, I want to learn how to write a sentence like this. Listen to this guy. Modern pluralistic cultures are beguiled by the cosmetically, cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity of belief is all that counts and that truth is subject to the beholder. Isn't that a great sentence? Isn't that a great sentence? That, that we're cosmetically, it's a cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity is all that matters. Truth does not. He goes on and he says, in no other discipline of life can one be so naive. Is that not true? Is that not true? To say that all religions are right and that it does not matter whether the claims are objectively true is a catastrophic error in thinking. He continues, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not and accordingly defines the purpose of life. And he concludes... Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays a shocking ignorance of all religions. Every religion at its core is exclusive. Truth cannot be all-inclusive. Truth by definition excludes what? Error or, or the untrue or false. It excludes the false. Okay. I lost a new ager on that one uh, here uh, when we first got here, she hung around the church for a while and she came to some of the Bible studies. And in love, I told her that the Bible was the Word of God. And uh, she ultimately became intolerant of our intolerance of untruth and uh, our, our ability to only stand on the Word of God. I told her that everything else and anything else that spills out of the mouth of a man, whether he be a shaman or a guru or an imam or a rabbi, or a monk, or a priest, or a bishop, or a pope, or yes, a Protestant preacher. Anything else that spills out of the mouth of men is pure speculation. It's pure speculation. And quite often damning speculation. So to borrow a phrase from Ravi, she had been beguiled by the cosmetically courteous idea that truth is relative. Friends, truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. And there's one truth... What's his name? Someone tell me. Jesus Christ is his name. John 14, 6. I am the truth. And there's one gospel. And it is found in its entirety right here. It does not need any additions. It does not need any modifications. It does not need any embellishments. This is the gospel of God. In its entirety. This is all we need to do is as Adam was helping us sing, this is all we need to stand in the power of Christ. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, Even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be what? Someone tell me. Let him be accursed. These are the words of God. I'm not making this up. This is the Word of God. He says, if someone adds to or takes away from my gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. The words of 
of God through the Apostle Paul. And the fourth principle that undergirds this church is that we preach, uh, teach, love, and hold dear the biblical gospel. We don't add to it as many who call them Christians do, and we don't take away from it as many who call them Christians, themselves Christians do. Those who add to the biblical gospel always have a hidden agenda, always. And those who take away from the biblical gospel always have an agenda. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. And I'll say as the pastor of an international church, I see both. Um, I encounter those who are in such bondage to their self uh, justifying religion that they cannot accept the simple gospel of the grace of Christ. And of course I run into those who simply think that bloody cross is sheer foolishness. And I know you probably have the same, the same experience. Paul continues, to the Jew a stumbling block, this gospel of a crucified Christ, and to the Gentiles foolishness, and you know what he says next? But to the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, if you read your New Testament only with superficial comprehension, you will see that the power of God is a huge, huge theme with respect to the gospel, with respect to true conversion. It's a huge theme. In fact, I found over a hundred references to the power, uh, to power in the New Testament. Let me just share a couple with you to underscore this truth. You remember Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. Jesus told the Pharisees what? He says, you are, you are an error because you do not understand the Scriptures, nor do you understand what? The power of God. Acts 1, 8, Jesus uh, told His disciples that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit when He came. Acts 4, 33, we saw the, the apostles giving testimony with great power power. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul said he conducted his ministry in the word of truth and the power of God. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul said we live in Christ because of, you guessed it, the power of God. Ephesians 3, 20, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Colossians 1.11, we are strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Colossians 1.29, Paul said, I work according to His power which mightily works within me. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power. Very good, okay. And 1 Peter 1.5, we are protected by the Power of God through faith. Uh, through faith, Second uh, Peter one three, His divine power has granted us to see. Pardon me, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And here's the whole sermon: First Corinthians two five, First Corinthians four twenty. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in. Someone tell me. Power. Your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is the fourth principle that undergirds all of our ministries at this church. We do not trust in the speculations of men or their counsels or their edicts. We don't trust in rote 
prayers or liturgies or sacraments or ordinances. We don't trust in prepackaged, truncated gospel presentations. We do not trust in three-step formulas on how to become a Christian. We trust in one thing. Somebody, can someone guess what it is? The power of God. The power of God to change lives. We are like Martin Luther. Our conscience is held captive to the Word of God. The Word of God is clear. Men cannot make a real Christian. Churches cannot make a real Christian. Popes and priests and preachers cannot make a real Christian. Religious compliance and do-gooding cannot make a real Christian. Only God, only God by His power, His creative power, can make a real Christian. I heard a woman giving her testimony several years ago. And she said something that I've, I've never forgotten and I've used it many times since. She said that God had invaded her life. And I think if, if you're a Christian tonight, you probably understand what she's talking about. God invaded her life. And I want to say to you, Catholics and some Protestants uh, will, will tell you that, that they can make you into a Christian if you'll just do these three things. Or these five things, or these seven things, or these good works, or these sacraments, or these ordinances. I will promise you you'll be a Christian if you just do this stuff. I told the morning congregation, I think that's probably offensive to God. I, I have no doubt it's offensive to God. Only God can make a Christian. Only God, by the power of God, through His Word and by His Spirit, can we become born-again believers. You remember what Paul told Timothy about those who simply have a, a merely uh, religious experience in the church. Those who may just be church members, but not truly lovers and followers of Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul told Timothy? He said, they hold to a form of godliness, but they have denied its what? Someone tell me. They have denied its power. They have denied its power. They can do religion, but they can't do Christianity. They can never, a church member who's not regenerate can never, can never do Christianity. Christianity is a, is a radical call to walk with God. It's a supernatural call. I saw an article lampooning the modern church growth movement uh, on the internet uh, some weeks ago, and it highlights all the goofy things that, that uh, churches do these days to draw a crowd. And uh, <clears throat> um, you know how an authentic church, a biblical church, is supposed to grow the church? Do you know how that's supposed to work? Does anyone know? Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That article was entitled, I think I forgot to tell you, How to Grow Your Church Without God. That was the name of the article. And I'll be honest with you, friends. I, there's a lot of people out there uh, saying that they're growing the so-called church with all of their methods and strategies and, and orchestrations and... Uh, you know, I, I, that's something that at, at the International Church of Milan, uh, we want to grow the church by Acts chapter 2, verse 47. As God adds those who are being saved. Paul said in Romans 10, 14 and 17, How then shall they call upon the Lord in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of 
Christ. One of the foundations of this church is that, that our worship is built around the exposition of the Word of God. Uh, that, that's, that's who we are. That's what we believe. We believe that God's Word converts. We love music. We sing. We're thankful for the Davies. But music does not save. Anecdotes and funny stories that make up about 85% of a sermon that you'll hear in the States these days, they're nice to listen to, but they do not convert. Drama and interpretive dance do not save anybody. Philosophy and poetry do not convert. Political and social commentary do not convert. And no <clears throat> religious ceremony, pageantry, tradition do not convert. Only the Word of God converts by His power and through His Spirit. The Gospel is a display of the raw power of God. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I know you know this verse. For I am not, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's our church growth strategy right there. That is our church growth strategy. And I could go to many scriptures to highlight this truth, but you heard the scripture read earlier, 2 Corinthians 4. I'm just going to make a couple of brief points uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the text you heard read. Uh, <clears throat> And if our gospel is veiled, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it is uh, veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Whenever I talk to an unbeliever about the Lord Jesus Christ, biblically I know at least two things are happening. One, I know what Paul's talking about here in verse 3 and 4 are, are most probably happening uh, the, the, the adversary is blinding the eyes and the mind of the unbeliever. The other thing I know that is happening, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, I know that this unbeliever is willfully suppressing the truth that God has uh, made evident to him, as he makes so clear in uh, Romans chapter 1, that God has made it evident to all men, men are without excuse. And I know at least these two things are probably going on. Satan is at work uh, to blind this man, and this unbeliever is holding the truth down in himself. He's suppressing it down, as Paul talks about. And it doesn't really matter how slick and polished my apologetics are. It, it, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. I cannot break through Satan's power and through the power of, of the total depravity of a man who would be holding down the truth of God. I can't do it. I know I can't do it. I love that I can't do it. I would still be an accountant in Little Rock, Arkansas, if I thought it was up to me to convert anybody. Only God can convert. Only God can convert. And I, and I want to I liberate some of you guys. I hear people say sometimes, oh, I had a witnessing opportunity and it didn't go well. And they start blaming themselves and they say, oh, I wish I'd have said this or, oh, oh, I wish I'd have said that. Maybe that would have made the difference, right? And I want to say to you, friends, it's not up to you. Yes, we're to be a good witness. Yes, we're to be able to, to, be able to share the gospel in, in an effective way. But friends, at the end of the day, it is up to God. It is, it is by the power of God that, that people will become Christians. And if we understand this, we become better evangelists. When we understand it's contingent upon the power of God breaking through, we become better evangelists because we become more discerning in, uh, in our words and in our timing. We can become more winsome in the way we present the gospel. Does anyone know what the word winsome means? It means we can be more at ease and more pleasant when we share the gospel. We can be more loving and long-suffering. We can witness to someone for 25 years 
Because today might be the day that the power of God breaks through. Today might be the day. The day might be the day. So we can be long-suffering. Friends, only God can make a Christian. Listen to what Paul says in, in here in verse 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> and I want you to hear this and I want you to get this image. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness... This is a reference to the creative act in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. He said He has enough power in His Word to, uh, to speak forth a, a billion galaxies. This is the reference here. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I love what John Piper says here. John Piper says, God moves with creative power over the darkness of human hearts. I love that. Friends, that's why I preach. <laughs> I preach because it's all about what God does. I'm just a mouthpiece, man. <laughs> that's all I am. It's about the power of God. God saves. God saves. God saves. And I love that about the Gospel. The message paraphrases verse 6 like this. It says, It started when God said, Light up the darkness. And our lives filled up with light, as we saw and understood God in the face of Christ, all bright and beautiful. It's what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9. God has called us out of what? Someone tell me. The darkness and into what? The marvelous light. This is what God does. He calls us forth. He shines forth that creative power and that creative light in our hearts. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. I wish I had time to talk about that verse. I could spend, there's about 14 sermons right there in that one verse. We just talked about a couple of weeks ago, Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But what happened? What happened? But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love for us, He what? He made us alive together with Christ. It's, it's the John 11. John 11 is a perfect illustration of this. Lazarus was dead in that tomb. He was not only dead, he was decomposing. He'd been there four days. And he wasn't coming out. No, matter, no amount of, of liturgies or rote prayers are going to bring him out of the tomb. But what brought him out of the tomb? What brought him out of the tomb? The creative power of God. Friends, this is a picture. It's an illustration of true conversion. It's an illustration of true conversion. The Gospel is mercy, grace, and love, and it is the power of God. So what happens to a man or a woman who hears the Gospel, he repents, and he believes, and he receives Christ by faith. He accepts that grace offer from God. Now what happens to that man or woman? What happens in their life? When that, when that transaction occurs, what happens? Everything happens. <laughs> Everything begins to happen. It's a life that gets turned upside down. You know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If any man is in Christ, he is... Someone tell me. He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I love the imagery here by C.S. Lewis. He says, God has come to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. 
I love that imagery. By the power of God, our hearts and souls receive their wings. And once we catch a glimpse of, uh, a true glimpse of Jesus Christ, we cannot not love Him and pursue Him and worship Him. It's like the guy over in Matthew 13.44. You know that great chapter over, over in Matthew 13 where Jesus is illustrating what true faith looks like and what true conversion looks like. And there's this man, and, and Jesus tells this parable, and this man finds this treasure. And, and there's a key word in that verse. And from joy, he goes and he sells all that he has that he may possess this treasure. Okay, someone tell me, who's the treasure in the parable? Jesus Christ. And when that light is, shout, is shown in the heart of this, this, this man, Jesus becomes his treasure. And it's from joy. It's from joy that he goes. It's from joy that he goes and sells all that he has. Friends, I want to say to you, in biblical conversion, Jesus Christ will become your treasure and He will become your joy. And it's by the creative power of God. Friends, I want to tell you, I'm in awe of, of true conversion. I, had a, I, had a, uh, I was telling the morning service that uh, um, I used to teach Sunday school and, and I had a guy that was in my Sunday school class for a long, long time. His name was Thomas and his wife was, our, was, our, was already converted and uh, she called me one night. She said, Jim, you've got to come over here, man, because Thomas is about to be a Christian. He says, you've got to come right now, because if you come over here and say something to him, he'll become a Christian. And I knew Thomas knew the gospel. I knew he knew the gospel. And I told Marcia, I said, I'm not going to come. I said, how about this? How about this? Why don't we let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does? Why don't I not get in the way of the Holy Spirit? Uh... Thomas knows the gospel. Why don't we let the power of God do what the power of God does? You know, I think sometimes we, we, we usurp the place of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying we don't go witness to people in need. I'm not saying that. But I knew this, where this man was. Guess what? The Holy Spirit got his man. Thomas became a Christian. In this church, we trust exclusively in the power of God to convert through His Word and by His Spirit. We're not interested in the least in the dead religious traditions of the past nor the man-centered church growth strategies of the future. The old one tries to control and manipulate and, and manage conversion. The new one tries to abridge and package and market it. Both are unbiblical. Both are unbiblical. And any unbiblical gospel is another gospel. And God says, let them be accursed. And friends, I, I fear God way too much to stand in here, to stand here in this pulpit and play around with His message. And I think most of you know that. Most of you have been around for uh, any period of time, you know that. Lord willing, uh, and by His enabling, we're going to preach the gospel straight up. So we don't, we don't preach and teach someone that you can become a Christian by becoming a church member. We tell them that they, you must become a Christian by becoming a born-again child of God. It's by the power of God. I'm going to close tonight sharing an email with you that we received uh, from a young woman. It's actually addressed to Karen. We get emails like this on occasion. It's a great joy to pull up that email and get an email like this. Let me just share it with you. This young woman, she says, I am writing to tell you the good news, exclamation point. I just got saved, three exclamation points. God reached down and touched my heart and came into my life. What she's saying right there is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. She's talking about the creative power of God. You know that I have always been in church. 
And I've been going to Christian schools all my life. I've been a good little girl. But I realized I didn't know Him. I knew all about Him. I knew a lot about the Bible, but I did not know Him. And I had begun to struggle with the fact that I called myself a Christian. And it was like Satan was on my shoulder saying, Oh, you're a good little girl. Don't worry about it. You're a good little Baptist. It's no problem. You go to church all the time. Don't worry. You're fine. She says, But Satan was feeding me a lie. She says, I was totally deceived. I was deceived into thinking and believing that I was a Christian because I know something about the Bible and I was baptized as a little girl. She says, I was deceived. I finally realized I didn't know Christ at all. Then she's going she's to reference 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 again. Look what she says. The Holy Spirit of God convicted my heart and showed me that I had been living uh, my life for myself. I had no idea who Christ was. I had head knowledge and not heart knowledge. And that night I surrendered myself to Christ. (laughs) And she says, since that time I have come to know Him. She says, my desires have changed tremendously and my thoughts have changed. What's she talking about there? Oh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. She's become a new creature. She's become a new creature. She says, it's been amazing. Three exclamation points. Friends, that's what happens when the power of God comes into your life. Christ becomes your joy. And Christ becomes your treasure. I'm going to end this, uh, this message. Uh, I'm going to sign off with you tonight just like Paul signed off with, with the Corinthians in his second letter. He said, test yourself. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. It's the most loving thing as a pastor I can say to you. Examine yourself. Have you been born again or have you been merely trusting in some religious tradition or some religious ordinance or something some pastor or some priest or some pope said? Are you trusting in God? Have you been changed? You remember what he told Nicodemus? You've got to be born again. He said, you need such a big miracle. It's got to be done by God. Have you experienced the power of God in your life like that? And I'm going to ask you to test yourself. Examine yourself. Do you belong to Christ? Is He your joy? And is He your treasure? I love preaching the Gospel because I love watching God turn lives upside down one at a time. What a joy. What a joy. Let's pray together. Forgive us, Father, for trusting in lesser things. Forgive us, Father, for believing that we could be Christians just because we go to church or just because we did some ordinance or we, we participated in some sacrament or, or we went through some kind of uh, ceremony or pageantry. Father, I don't think this pleases You at all. In fact, I think it offends You greatly that we think we can be converted by religion. Father, Your Word tells us Our only hope is Your power. Your creative power. To speak life and light into our black and dead hearts. And oh God, we rejoice that You're a God with a heart set to redeem a people for Himself. Father, a God who 
who pays an unfathomable price to redeem His people. Father, we are in awe of the Gospel. We are in awe of the power of God that You've unleashed in our hearts. Father, may we live at large. May we not waste our days walking upon the earth, these few days that we have, taking it for granted and not appropriating the power, oh God, that You've given us. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has not, has not come under the power of God, oh, oh Father, I pray that You might, might draw them and grant them a heart of repentance, that they might cry out to You, O oh Lord, to be changed by Your power, to be born again, to be lit up by Your creative power. Oh Lord, thank You for Your great Gospel. Thank you for your great gospel. We rejoice and give thanks. We give all praise, glory, and honor to the matchless name of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table, and we, uh, we have open communion here, as most of you know, and if you've professed Christ and followed Him in baptism, you're welcome to partake of the table. Uh, the way we do it is... Uh, Adam will play and sing through a song. You're welcome to sing with him or prepare your heart. Don't come to the table unworthy. As Paul told the Corinthians, don't come in a legalistic way or uh, an unrepentant way. Come in a, with a clean heart, receiving the grace that Christ has offered through His finished work. Prepare your heart and come and partake. Adam's going to play. The song will be about four or five minutes long. You, you come up when you're ready. Take the juice, take the bread. Go back to your seat, and after the song ends, I will stand and read a scripture, and then we will partake of the elements, okay?